0: Hi, and welcome to the FDCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everybody who loves nature. We are coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range of northwest Montana. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also serve 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. So, in the Nature Journal, we'll focus on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus, the wide surrounding Flathead Basin, and all across Montana. Our producer is Colin Burkhart, employee here at FECC Library. And thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director, for offering the library as our podcast home. Well, today we'll be talking about the Montana's northern flying squirrel, a very little-known animal. But first, in the Christmas tradition, because this is our Christmas, Mm -hmm. right? This is our Christmas episode. We'll chat just a little bit about their main habitat, which is the boreal forest and conifers. So in the distance past, trees around the world addressed the winter solstice and the lengthening of days. And so these green boughs, people sort of brought them in or looked at them, and they represented renewal or recovery from the green in the, you know around the, the winter solstice when everything else was brown or white. They became a tradition, Christmas trees, in Germany. Martin Luther first brought a tree into his home, and the, the legend was he's walking through a, a conifer mm-hmm. forest, and he looked up and saw stars through the trees and thought, wow bring a tree inside and put candles on it, and it'll look just like this. So supposedly... Do you think that's where they got the idea for putting I, the star on top? I don't know. That's a could good be, question. But that tradition is out there, so it's hard to say. And some of the trees that people use today for Christmas trees are, include what species?
1: So I read it was the balsam fir and the douglas fir were some of the more popular ones.
0: Yep. And the subalpine fir, actually, if you're up farther mm. up, up in the forks of the flatted, the one we got this year was a subalpine fir, I believe. Oh, yeah. And uh, in, in pine, white pine is possible pine, also. Yeah. So Christmas trees have become quite a tradition, and the U.S. picked up that tradition from Germany. And In 1848, English queen Victoria, in a drawing in the London News, was shown around a decorated tree with her family, and that boosted the popularity of the tradition, especially in the eastern U.S. And now what would you say about what percentage of homes in the U.S. have Christmas trees, would you say? It's got to be over 75, I'd say. 77% in the last survey. There was, mm. And in the 20, 2018 holiday season, 95 million households celebrated with a tree. And speaking of conifer trees, let's talk about one of the most tree-dependent, little-seen and curious animals that we have in Montana, the northern flying squirrel. Yeah. Now, this little tree squirrel is one of two tree squirrels that are native to Montana. So there's a northern flying squirrel. What's the other one? Oh, uh, Red Squirrel? Yes, the Rocky Mountain Red Squirrel is the other <laughs> native to Montana. And the subject of our show today, the Northern Fly Squirrel, is rarely seen by people. Like, you've never seen one, right? No, no, not me. And I spent an awful lot of time in the woods, and the only one I've ever seen is was in a trap <laughs> that we are looking at to capture for fish, wildlife, and parks. And so they're very hard to see. You just can't see them out there, even though there's probably more than people think. Uh, the size is similar to a small red squirrel. They're a different shape. They're a lot different looking. They're... They're very gray and they have a flat tail. Their scientific name is Glaucomis sabrinus. And their food habits are seeds, fruits, flowers, insects, tree sap, fungus, fungus, eggs, and carrion. Eggs, so they, what do you think, what kind of eggs do you think they get? Oh, it gotta be bird eggs. Yep, all kinds of different bird eggs. So they're really pretty hard on the birds. They can mm. stash cones and seeds under the snow near the base of the tree. They're always uh, gathering or feeding on whatever they can get. I didn't know that they
1: went for fungus.
0: Yeah, well, and, and lichens, mm-hmm. they grow on the tree, and so they're small, and they're grayish brown, and they, they actually live, of course, as we know, in trees, and they have large, shiny black eyes. I remember seeing that on the one I was handling, and they are mostly in the coniferous and boreal forests, although they can be in the riparian woodlands of western Montana, and they're, they're widely distributed in Montana, but you'd never know it, would you? I mean, you just don't see them. Yeah,
1: they are nighttime animals. Yep. They're out at night. They're nocturnal. And, you know, they're going phew, phew, from tree to tree. It's not, yeah. not like something you're looking to see, you know. The most you're ever going to see of one at night, if, unless you've got some uh, way to see in the dark, is you'll we'll probably see this shadow going <laughs> over your head. That's true. And, they, you know, they're doing a study or
0: they've done a study on them down in Missoula as a graduate student. And uh, we'll talk about that. And they've got some incredible photography they used with floodlights and stuff oh, Wow. on those. So they're about 10 inches long, nose to tail, and they weigh about a pound or less. Of course, they're arboreal, in other words, they live in that conifer forest. And a furred fold of skin stretched between ankles and wrists acts as the sail that allows them to glide from tree to tree or from tree to ground. They can't glide up from the ground. Oh, yeah, no. And they have to take off from an elevated point. And it made me think when I was looking through this of those people that wear these bat suits and dive off a of mountain peak. Oh, yeah, like. Which seems insane, but that it's sort of similar to that. But they're not nearly as maneuverable as a flying squirrel. I mm-hmm. found out they have an incredibly maneuverable glide from tr- from tree to ground or from tree to tree. That skin fold that goes between their ankles and wrists is called a patagium, hmm. similar to a bat, and they use that to glide. And now the tail is flat. You ought to see the tail on these things. I've, I've tried skinning one, what? and they're hard to skin. They're very thin-skinned, and the tail is like it looks like this flat. Don't know how I describe it, but it's not round like a regular tail. It's not, flat. It's not very bushy? It's it's bushy to the side. It's like flat and bushy hmm. out to the side. And that, that helps them uh, aerodynamic. Yes, it helps them move and steer and as they go through the air. And their average gliding distance is fifty to sixty feet, but there's hundred and fifty feet mostly is possible for the average flying squirrel, I guess. <laughs> and then up to two hundred and seventy feet down a mountainside has been observed.
1: That's amazing. That's almost a hundred yards.
0: Yeah. And the silent glide of a flying squirrel requires an elevated launching point, so they got to push off from a tree, and it can't take off from the ground. Think about those people that wear those bat suits. You know, they got oh, yeah, to get yeah. way up in elevation to get the. You got
1: to jump from somewhere. You yeah. Can't, you can't glide if you're not if you're not up high already.
0: Right, and it's not a true flight, so you you have to use mm-hmm. gravity above gravity. The squirrel makes a head down position on a tree branch or trunk, and then pushes off with its strong hind legs and spreads all four legs to a fully this gliding membrane. And it's just kind of cute and funny to think about them doing this, you know, like, man, they have a lot of guts. Yeah. <laughs> so just launch off from a 100-foot high, you know, a ponderosa pine or something. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, so once the squirrel's airborne, it steers by alternating its wrists and four-leg positions. And then, as we said, the flattened tail acts like a rudder and adds to the lift provided by the flight membranes. And it just it just makes me think of a you know, flying squirrel taken off from a tree, and I, I have this impression of a little aircraft hat it's wearing and it's all ready to go, you know, and shoves off. Because they, they have a much more complicated, and we'll talk about there, a much more complicated flight than most people think. They can make rapid side-to-side maneuvers, and they can bank their turns and go in tight downward spirals. Well, I'd love to see one do that. And there's these incredible new studies that that are being produced down at the University of Montana and into the edge of the Bob Marshall where these flying squirrels, they might use a dozen separate flight control techniques. They're doing this indoors, too, and, and with domestic flying squirrels. And different squirrels would use different combinations of these techniques, like they're all individual. And they can pack weight along with them, like a pine cone when they soar or whatever their food item is. And when a glide runs out of momentum, the squirrel pulls upright at the last instant and lands gently. And then it climbs again to launch a new glide. So it's pretty amazing. how You know, to me, it's like, it's complicated enough being a squirrel and avoiding predators, but now you got to learn all this flight stuff? I mean, it's,
1: it's incredible. I just can't imagine this. They must learn it young.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. When they're, they're weaned at a, you know, a young age, but how do they learn this? I mean, yeah. how do you You can't pass this on. It's too complicated. It's got to be instinct, instinct in their genes, mm-hmm. you know. They have these little wing tips also, which are small protuberances that – They deflect and retain um, some air vortices that form along the leading edge of their wings, and that that generates more lift as well. So it's a very complicated soaring technique that they do. So just a little bit of information about the swirl itself. It mates from February to May, and it does aerial displays to impress females. And you ought to see some of the ones that are described in this study. I mean, they go through all this complicated... You know, boom, 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 to try to impress the female. And The female just sits there and watch. And then when it's over, you know, the male, then the female takes off and goes. This it just sounds really cute. You know, <laughs> their their nests are built either with natural cavities, in within like a snag or something, or an abandoned woodpecker hole in dead standing trees, or they built their nest over limbs or within witches brooms. You know what a witch's broom is? It's like a cluster of branches. It's a disease some, huh. sometimes called mistletoe, and it's a very <laughs> dense cluster, cluster of branches on a conifer. So they build their, their nests there. Their young are born in late May to June, and late litters have been cited as evidence of a second litter, possibly can produce a second litter. I doubt it in our climate here. The weaning occurs at two months. In other words, they're a mammal, right? So they're feeding off their mother, and obviously she's not flying while they're doing that. <laughs> but they've got to learn somehow that, hey, you just take off here. You know. And it's, it's amazing to think instinct would give them that much accurate information. They must watch the adult. They must watch the adult It must be like, kind of like
1: when, when uh, a baby bird is learning how to fly and leave the nest, and it's like, with all of this, what? they must be doing something similar.
0: Yeah, it's just the way they can, the, the, female, the female is actually passing on, because rodents are not known for their advanced mental mm. capacities. I mean, sure, bears do a lot of teaching of their young and, and other species, but you wouldn't imagine a squirrel doing it. So a lot mm. of it has to be heavily instinctive. Some of the squirrels may stay with their mother for longer than the two months. But basically, that's a, at an average. Now, they got a lot of predators. They, that includes the raptors. Like, for example, why wouldn't they have many raptor presence predators at night? But those birds wouldn't see as well at night, right? That's right. That's right. But you have the owl. So they mm. have the owl. So when we're thinking about why is the advantage of these squirrels to be at night and flinging themselves off of these trees. And we'll talk about that near the end here. So flying squirrels are almost impossible to census. We don't have a good idea of how many flying squirrels we have in our forests. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen any kind of population estimate on flying squirrels.
1: As I said, I've, been, I've trapped them. That would be them. an interesting study if someone did.
0: Yeah, it would. It's, it's wide open for study. Now, these these guys <laughs> in Missoula are mainly studying the flight aspects of the flying squirrels. If you were censusing them, you'd be up quite late. Yeah, you would be. <laughs> I think that apparently, it goes on all night. And uh, what I want to end with there is, is just a discussion of What's the selective advantage of gliding and, do, and being nocturnal at night? What do you think?
1: I got to imagine it's the distance that they can cover to get away from other things. Because you mm-hmm. mentioned owls, and I think yeah. if that was the case, if they could glide and disappear into the tree branches, you know, one from one tree, if they get spotted, they go take off into another tree and then mm-hmm. try and lose or lose the line of sight there.
0: Okay, so predator avoidance is definitely one. And then usually things are predator avoidance, cover, or food. So cover, they can get to a new area where there's no predators. And then food-wise, they can go to a, and exploit new food food sources at a different tree instead of having to climb and down and walk yes. all the way over there. But it's hard to imagine a really simple-to-explain selective advantage of what, when you think of all the energy it takes to actually glide the way they're gliding. It's incredibly complicated. And you wonder how it would be worth it, you know, to just get be able to food feed better and avoid a few predators. And so... Just to wrap it up here, Colin, have you ever seen a flying squirrel? I'm asking the audience. Probably many of you haven't. It's the elusive glider of the deep forest. Don't feel bad if you haven't seen one, because almost nobody has. (laughs) That's all the time we have for this episode of The Nature Journal. So Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, and thanks for tuning in to our show. We've done 23 episodes this semester. It doesn't seem possible. And we'll be taking a break until the next semester begins in mid-January. So Happy Holidays again, and we'll see you next time.